You're listening to Brave Not Perfect with Rashma Sajani, presented by Anchor and Girls Who Code. Hi, it's Rashma. Thanks for joining me, and welcome to Brave Not Perfect, where we talk with changemakers from all around the world who have one thing in common, and they don't even know it. At some point in their journey, they've decided that it's better to jump in and try to make things better now, instead of waiting till they had all the skills and knowledge. They decided that it was better to be brave, not perfect. And starting a blog at 17, one that grew into a huge digital publication, that's pretty brave. And that's exactly what my friend did. Amani is the founder of Muslim Girl, a digital publication for and about young Muslim women. And through her hard work and entrepreneurship savvy, she is one of the most visible Muslim faces in America. So you started um, Muslim Girl when you were 17 years old as a blog. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how that happened. Honestly, everyone always wants to know like the eureka moment of when I had to start Muslim Girl. And I always say there wasn't really that movie eureka moment. It was a buildup of a long, a long time, many years of me feeling like I was left out of the media. Mm. Um, You know, like 9-11 happened when I was nine. And for a young girl growing up in Jersey, born and raised Jersey girl to suddenly you know, have this curtain pulled back on on racial tensions in our country and feeling like this isn't home anymore um, and and not seeing really representation of myself in, in the news and the media around me. It just made me feel like an outsider. You know, like growing up, it, it did a lot to like my self-esteem, my feeling of belonging. And ultimately, I felt robbed of the the coming of age that young girls are entitled to, you know, growing up. And I didn't really f- have other girls that were like me that I could connect with. Um, and I felt like, you know, the very few places that I could find online where I can connect with other Muslim girls, for example, they were kind of irrelevant to what my experience was as like a first generation uh, American born and raised here. Um, you know, like a, a lot of times I felt like the conversations we needed to have that were directly relevant to our lives were just like missing from the picture. Like I would have loved to be able to find a place where I can talk about the extreme bullying I was going through growing up or wow. yeah. the, the you know, uh, imposter syndrome, the mm-hmm. identity complex, things like that, you know. Um, and so just it was a culmination of many, many years of frustration and and feeling left out. And so. Um, selfishly enough, I started Muslim Girl because I wanted to find other Muslim girls out there that were going through the, those emotions yeah. and those experiences that I was. And so, it was like, build it and they will come. You know, I, we were also one of the few Indian families in our neighborhood. So most of my friends I met through like South Asian dance parties or like, mm-hmm. you know, our, when our parents would drag us to the Hindu temple. Yeah. Right. So it's like I had this different social life out of school. Like that community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that I hung out with and that understood me and our parents. And we, you know, what was what was it like? Like growing up after 9-11, nine years old, being Muslim, wearing a hijab in Jersey? Honestly, like instantaneously, our, our lives were flipped upside down. You know, um, for for us as a Muslim family, my my parents, for example, at the time, they had my dad has an electronics business, you know, like the typical immigrant story. Right. And he had a store in our local indoor flea market in our hometown. Mm hmm. And for example, as soon as 9-11 happened, a bunch of other vendors in the building created a petition to try to get all of the Muslim business owners out of the building. Wow. 
Um, my family's home in our suburban town, it was egged, water ballooned, teepeed, you know, toilet papered and stuff regularly. Uh, my family was just constantly harassed. My mother had her tires slashed by someone that we knew. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and, and so it just became this atmosphere of it's acceptable to it's exhibit your, your violence. Yeah, right. you know, right. and I think that there's a lot of, you know, vibrations of that that are kind of recurring right now today. So... You probably go from like fear, shame, you know what I mean, imposter syndrome to like, okay, now I, I want to, I want to be, act, you know, I want to become an activist. I'm going to, I want to speak out about this. Is that what you would say what was happening when you were 17? I think it happened when I was 13 years old and my family decided to move to Jordan. It was my first visit to the Middle East and mm-hmm. it was when I was 13. It came at a time when you know, the typical teenage girls dealing with like body image issues and self-esteem and, you know, you're just coming of age and getting to know yourself. And then my parents thought it was this brilliant idea to uproot our Jersey family and throw us into a new culture, new country, new lifestyle. And at the time, my parents described it as an adventure. You know, we're going to go meet your family. You're going to learn a new language and things like that. Um, but it wasn't until I started writing my book in 2016 and I started interviewing my parents about those moments that they actually revealed to me that the reason why they moved us was because they were afraid that our family would fall victim to a hate crime wow. or become susceptible to Islamophobic violence. And that was just a huge shocker for me because, you know, we we joke all the time, like, if this person is elected, I'm getting out of here, I'm moving out of this country. And that was actually the reality for my family. I didn't realize it at the time. But that was a transformative experience for me. When I went to the Middle East and I was introduced to the people of this land that we're constantly hearing about in the news and I got to learn just they were the most hospitable people I'd ever met. They were it was just such a peaceful society. It was a society in which Islam was actually being practiced, where it was born. Um, and just being introduced to it outside of all of the negativity and the propaganda, I think, was really transformative. And it opened my eyes to the huge contrast between how the Middle East was being represented in Western media and how it really was on the ground. Yeah. Um, and so when I came back to the States, to me, that was a, a turning point. It was like, you know, first of all, I had made the decision to start wearing a headscarf as a result of that. In Jordan. In Jordan, yeah. It was at a time when both of my parents were traveling out of the country because I was that rebellious teenage <laughs> girl. I didn't want anyone to say my parents made me do it. Um, and I put it on because to me, that was my reclamation of my identity. It's mm. like, wow, I ended up falling in love with this this background that I was being forced to shun my entire life. And I wanted to visibly defy that Islamophobia that put me in that position. So I put on the headscarf and upon returning to the States, I think that was the turning point where, you know, I suddenly became a visible Muslim. The first thing people knew about me before they knew my name or who I was, was that I was a Muslim. And that placed me in a position where people started coming to me with questions or expecting me to answer to certain things. And instead of you know, shying away from that or running away, I, I decided to to take up that responsibility, even though I don't think that Muslims necessarily have to. We're not responsible for educating other people. But to me, I thought it was a really great opportunity to kind of make a difference within my community. So you start a blog. Were you always a writer? I was always a writer. Always a writer. Oh, yeah. Like you journaled when you were young or? Very much so. Yeah. Like I got started writing when I was in elementary school, the way that I got through high school, actually, because after I came back and I was wearing the headscarf, I actually lost a ton of friends. And it, like, what do they say to you? I don't want to be a friend anymore because you're wearing a headscarf. I mean, they didn't really say anything. It, it just was kind of just people distancing themselves or people just feeling like they didn't have much in common with me anymore, couldn't connect with me in some way. And and also went both ways for myself as well. It became more difficult for me to relate with my peers and the people around me because of that. You know, the typical teenage girl, again, you know, like 
you would expect that just like all my peers they had like a social life at the time after class they would go to the local mall and hang out and stuff like that but for me instead I would go home every single day and journal and I would write about my experiences I had an online blog and that was kind of like my survival mechanism that's how I got through high school I actually still to this day have every single day of my high school life chronicled like to a t I don't even remember half of the stuff in there anymore when I reread it but I still have it and that was what led me to starting Muslim Girl. It was like writing was always that escape for me and that mechanism. And I was always online on my computer anyway, you know, finding those spaces online that I couldn't find in real life. And so it was just a natural next step. I decided, why not? I actually started Muslim Girl on that blogging platform. It's called LiveJournal.com. Throwback for anyone, <laughs> for anyone listening, the, the pre-Tumblr era, like the millennial kids. LiveJournal was our blogging platform. And I started a community on there called Muslim Girls um, because I wanted to find those girls that were that were out there. And within the first five days of us launching, we had over a thousand new members join, the majority of which were non-Muslims that were just excited to learn about Islam from an unintimidating, accessible source. And that was how it all started. So how did it grow? It started as a blog building community. What is it now? Now it's become the most visible Muslim women's website in the country. Um, Some people say in the English speaking world and its impact has definitely evolved past my bedroom when I was in high school. Now high school girls today are turning it into a movement of their own and it's beautiful. And I think the reason why it got to where it is, is because we decided very early on that we were going to keep the conversation about us. Like I said earlier, you know, we were robbed of that opportunity to develop our identities for ourselves, you know, when we were kids, because we the media was just bombarding us with messaging about who we were and what we stood for and stuff like that. So we wanted to remain authentic, true to our own voices and not pander to any specific audience outside of our own community. So mm-hmm. we just kept it relevant to ourselves. And, you know, over time, mainstream media, instead of us coming to them and asking them to affirm our stories or our voices, they started coming to us and asking us to be a source on these stories or to inform them about some of the topics that they were covering. So give me an example of a typical topic that's like talked about. Okay, so the content has definitely evolved. For example, one of the first articles that we wrote about on Muslim Girl was how to worship while you're menstruating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like it's laughable because at the time it was such a taboo topic like girls were not talking about this publicly. And I remember at the time, like it literally resulted very organically from a lunch table conversation that I was having. Can I go to the can I go to the mosque when I literally? Yeah, exactly. And or like, how can I continue praying if I'm on my period? What do I do and stuff like that? And I just realized, oh, my God, if we're asking these questions, there have to be other girls out there that are also asking these questions. So um, actually, one of those girls at the time, she actually asked for her name to be removed from the article because it was so embarrassing because right. it was so taboo. <laughs> right. Um, today, we're publishing, you know, like personal essays from trans Muslim women converts from black Muslims speaking to racial experiences at the intersection of the war on terror. Um, and, and a lot of much more like critical uh, form thoughts that I think contribute to the feminist lexicon. That's ultimately what our goal is, is to contribute to that intersectional feminism and continue expanding the definition of it to include Muslim feminists as well. Yeah. Do you feel seen today? I, I do feel seen. Do I feel heard? That's a different question. Mm. I think that right now, Muslim women are kind of like in a hot moment. And a lot of people are really tapping into, you know, this like diversity trend. It's a hot topic. It's great. I love it. And especially in the social media era, I think it's a beautiful accelerator for a lot of brands to really just pick up on that moment and, and progress their society forward. But I do um, struggle to feel that 
our voices, our opinions on different topics, they're not necessarily reaching that level of, of representation within our society yet. Like, I would love for uh, Muslim women to be the ones making up our newsrooms yeah. and our fashion houses and our studios. Um, and, and we still have some way to go in that department, but I think that we've already come such a long way. And, you know, in terms of Muslim girl, the whole point was to rebrand Islam and, and Muslim women in today's media, right? It's, it's shifting this like perception of us that the war on terror cultivated of us being oppressed and needing liberation and that we're disempowered and flipping that on its head and telling people like, no, actually we stand on the shoulders of a long legacy of strong, badass Muslim women, and we're here and our voices matter. So we have a president who openly says hateful things about Muslims, mm -hmm. uh, passing the Muslim ban. Uh, some of the, I think, some of the arguments coming out of the Supreme Court decision or the Supreme Court argument mm -hmm. the other day were a little, whoa. Yep, to say the least. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, a little slow, like a hundred years slow. <laughs> yeah. And just a little bit like really we're really contemplating whether that decision wasn't made out of race mm -hmm. and racist views and sure. beliefs. Um, how do you feel about that? Like, what do you, you know, like when you, are we going backwards? Are we going forwards? Like, what can we do? Here's the thing. The majority of Americans have never met a Muslim person before or don't, don't think that they've ever met a Muslim person before. And yet Americans largely elected a president into the highest office in the land based on his policies on this community that people have no freaking idea about. And and the same thing happens with this, right? Like we have a Supreme Court that's like arguing over our basic constitutional and I would argue our human rights. And a lot of times our representatives within different branches in the government, they're not reflective of the people. They don't look like they don't look like the American people They're, You know, it's like it's 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 so far removed from the issues that are impacting us directly. Um, and it's no wonder then that we can blindly have like a Supreme Court decision or a vote on a legislation that is so drastically undercutting marginalized communities because we don't have that connection. We're able to dismiss them, dehumanize them, feel like their lives don't matter. But I think that's that's where storytelling comes in. That's really how we change the narrative. It's by elevating those experiences, those shared human stories that remind us of our of our humanity that really remind people like, oh, wait, you know, this this Muslim ban, it's going to impact my barber. It's going to impact my mailman. It's going to impact, you know, like my the, the person down the street around the corner. Um, once they feel that personal connection to the fact that, yeah, we're here, we're part of the fabric of this nation just as much as anybody else. I think that I'm hoping that things will change, you know, but, you know, just I, I look towards what's happening with the black struggle right now as well. You know, that lasted far longer than the adversity that Muslims are experiencing in this age of Islamophobia right now. Black Muslims made up 10 to 15 percent of slaves that were brought here on slave ships. So Muslims have a claim to this country that actually built it with their blood, you know, and I think that it's really important to really remind the the public of that and and really just change perceptions that way. But, you know, at, at the, the bottom line is that we have an uneven balance of power right now. And there is something systemically wrong with the way that these decisions are administered on the people. And, and I think it's safe to say that they aren't with the best interest of minorities at heart. Yeah. So you're an incredible leader. There's so many ways where you could think about how you 
where you channel your leadership. You know, do you do you run for office? Do you create a political organization? Right? Do you, uh, you know, do you do you protest every day? Do you write laws? Like one of the things that I see you doing, that I think is really powerful, is you're really taking you're taking your voice and you're putting it into the media and think in building a media company organization really to transform stereotypes and views of Muslim women and to also empower them and activate them. Why that avenue of all the things that you could have done? You know, I think that for myself, it definitely stemmed from personal experiences just because I know how directly I was impacted by that lack of representation growing up. Media does so much to really just establish our relationships with each other, the way that we perceive each other in terms of Muslim Americans these days there is a reason why the only time that we ever hear about the faith of a suspect or a perpetrator on the news is when they're Muslim. We never hear what their faith is otherwise. And the only times that we hear about Muslims in the news is when they're committing egregious actions. And because of that, and and on top of that, actually, the only time we ever label violence as terrorism is when it's committed by a Muslim person or a brown person. And it's immediately tied to religious religious motives rather than political or, or ulterior ones. Um, and, and in that way, the media is having a hand in literally brainwashing the people into believing that all Muslims are terrorists, all terrorists are Muslims. We're the only ones running around killing people all over the world, you know. And of course, it's going to establish this us versus them mentality that plays out in real life in the form of hate crimes, plays out on a national scale in the form of Muslim bans. And so in my opinion, if we get at the root of that, if we're able to change that public perception through the media, if we're able to cultivate our own independent alternative media sources and platforms, we're able to really just take away from that and and cultivate our own power, our own place in society to be able to talk back. Are you hopeful? I'm super hopeful. I am I'm super too. hopeful. Mm-hmm. So you... um. Basically, you were a bullied child. You felt alienated. Um, you grew up, and, and sometimes in a community that may have felt that, that didn't want you. Um, but when I look at you, it's like you are. You're shining, up, you're shining with hope. You know, that, what, what, how did that happen? How did you not become angry and defeated and say, screw it? Like, same reason why I'm here right now. It's sisterhood absolutely sisterhood. Like I absolutely would not have been able to survive my high school years if kind of like yourself, I I had some sense of community in my local mosque. I had girlfriends that I met at the mosque growing up that literally became, I didn't have sisters growing up. I have two little brothers. So they became my tribe. They had my back. They were the first, some of the first writers on muslimgirl.com very early on. And just my team today, I think we all like Muslim Girl has really evolved into just such a safe space and, and that community for us. And my my editors, for example, are the only people that I talk to literally every single day of my life. And it <laughs> definitely spans beyond editorial sometimes. Right. And we look to each other for that support. It's just a daily reminder that women are going to be our emancipation. Like we are going to be the ones to save the day. I wholeheartedly believe in that. So, like, when was, like, the moment in your life? Because I think all of us, right, are trying sometimes to just do it all right. Like, not raise our voice too much. Like, mm. be nice. Don't tell people how we feel. And then something happens. Maybe it's your eureka, maybe it's a eureka moment. Maybe it's something really, like, subtle. Will you just kind of break through and you start living your life for you? Mm. 
I would say I had a moment like that recently when um when a brand reached out to me to present me with recognition for the work that we've done at Muslim Girl. And one of their brand ambassadors was somebody that had uh, just very vocal political opinions that I felt were detrimental to the livelihoods of my constituents and wasn't really inclusive of them or, or had their best interest at heart. So it put me in this difficult position where, you know, I really absolutely wanted to accept that recognition on behalf of myself and my incredible team and excite them with that and stuff like that. But it put me in this place where I felt like I would be hypocritical of accepting it and and affirming those opinions that really just cut out my community. Um, and, and knowing that that decision will be technically on behalf of that community. Um, and, and so I just couldn't bring myself to accept it. I, I had to turn it down. And it just... It was it was definitely a hard decision to make. Um, it was definitely a contentious one. People had their opinions about whether or not I should have accepted it, if I did the right choice, and whatever. But at the end of the day, it was me making a public decision following my conscience, purely on what I believe is right or wrong, and not really like what's going to be the best ROI for my startup or, you know, what's going to be the best look for us and what's going to get us the visibility and stuff like that. But it was just something that I felt like needed to be done. Um, and, and in that way, I think that, you know, we built more trust with our constituents and we, we got, you know, people understood that it was a difficult decision and a difficult place to be in. And we didn't do so really to, uh, you know, we didn't do so. It's like poke at them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like I didn't make that decision to really offend anybody. It was just something that I personally like based on my morals was something that I felt like I had to do. So it was the first time that I feel like I was publicly placed in that position. And, um, the first time that I felt like the the backlash from it or, you know, like the, the, the public eyes all over it and stuff like that. And it was hard to deal with that pressure. It was very hard to deal with that pressure actually. But you know, just knowing that the people that I made that decision on behalf of all had my back and, and not only had my back about it, but were proud of it. That's all that mattered at the yeah. end of the day. It's brave. And I think it inc- it's also like at the end of the day, you're a role model, right? And people look towards you and the decisions that you make to help inform theirs. And well, like if you could actually, you know, because I think at the end of the day, sometimes we're afraid to do what our heart is telling us to yeah. do. Yeah. Totally. And the thing is, is, for us, especially being a marginalized community, a minority community, it's like we're in a position where we're setting precedents right now. We're on the front line. So decisions that we make right now will, you know, reverberate throughout our community and for other Muslim girls on the come up and stuff like that. So it feels even more of a responsibility in that way. And at the end of the day, I think that's what I'm talking about when I say, like, I, I definitely feel seen, but I'm not sure if we necessarily feel heard because, you know, Muslim women are always right now, at least at this time, we, we are going to be held accountable for like our, 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 our views, our quotes, our opinions. We're going to be like under a, a double standard for, for publicly speaking out. Um, and, and so I think the more that we find the courage to do that and use our voices and stay true to them, the more other women will find the courage to do that as well. It really just starts with one voice, right? And then it culminates and it culminates and it culminates. And, you know, it's just, it's just about contributing to that wave whenever we have the opportunity to do so. Awesome. That's powerful. Thank you, Amani. Thank you, Rashma. Thanks for having me. 
always say it's an amazing time to be a woman. And I feel even more so when I meet these incredible leaders like Amani, who are making such a huge difference for young girls across the country. They look at her and they see themselves in her. And if we could create more leaders like Amani, this world would just be a better place. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at Brave Not Perfect Podcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. Until next time, this has been an episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani. <laughs>